So there, there are several uh, professions that really, I, don't, I believe, don't get enough credit, but they deserve more credit. One of those professions, it's uh, a bunch of men and women do this, um, EMTs, emergency medical technicians. These guys just amaze me. Now, I, I'm hoping you haven't had to call one because we never call them for good things. It's not like you call to have a party. <clears throat> but if you've ever had to call one, they absolutely amaze me. They come into a situation where they don't know what's going on. There's a bunch of panic. There's chaos. Everyone's concerned. They begin to ask questions, and people give them information. Some people give them misinformation. Uh, you know, there's all this confusion, and they just get right to work. They just jump in, and they just start doing it. They just start helping whoever it is that's hurt. What's interesting is they come in, and they're never there to assign guilt. They're never there to assign blame. It's not like they stand over the guy who's having a hard time and goes, well, you know, you eat too much. What do you expect? <laughs> they don't do that. They jump right in and they just, they get to work. We're in a, a series, as I said, called 90, where we're taking this journey through the life of Jesus. We kind of started where he shows up on the riverbanks of Jordan. That's kind of the beginning of his ministry up until the, the, the point where he decides to give his own life as a sacrifice for us. That's what we're celebrating in a few weeks called Easter. And as we've kind of taken this journey with Jesus, we've said from the very beginning, there's something that, that we, we want you to know, and it's going to carry throughout his whole life. And really, this is the thing that we hope you don't miss, that it carries with you um, even after this series ends. It's, it's something that's so foundational about Jesus. And that's when Jesus showed up, he wasn't a continuation of something old, or he wasn't a, like, I'm here to fulfill the Bible. It was, it was nothing like that. I'm here to change the Bible. Jesus came and he established something brand new. It was a complete departure of what was to, to the to kind of the celebration of what was coming, this brand new thing that he came to introduce. And the brand new thing he came to introduce, the first thing was a covenant. It was this new relationship between God and man. That before Jesus, there was a covenant between God and the nation of Israel. And Jesus said, I'm fulfilling that and I'm bringing something new, something better. This new covenant between God and all of mankind, not just the nation of Israel. Then he says, I'm going to bring you this new command, this governing ethic, if you will, that will impact every relational and financial decision you make from this point forward. And then the last thing he said is, I'm establishing a movement, the thing that we call the church. He said, I'm going to put that in motion so that when I leave, my work will continue and they will do the things that I've done on this earth. Jesus came to do something brand new. You see, as we follow the life of Jesus, there are people that kind of get confused, though. They look at him, and they see them as almost a continuation. It's, this is Judaism 2.0. This is, this is for the nation of Israel. There's this confusion about who Jesus is and what he came to do. But very discerning people could look in on the life of Jesus and say, no, no, he's not like other people. He's not like other teachers. T to be honest, I don't really have a category to fit him in because he is so just kind of revolutionary. He's so different. He, he might look like us, but he doesn't talk like us. He doesn't act like us. I mean, we, we spent two weeks talking about Jesus spending time with the people who weren't like him. And the people who were like him, they hated him for that. They despised him. He's not like us. He doesn't act like us. He doesn't talk like us. He, he doesn't do the things we do. There's something different about Jesus. When he came, he immediately upset the status quo. Some people were drawn to him because he was so attractional and he was so different and he wasn't like anyone they'd ever heard before. And other people saw that he wasn't like anything they'd seen before, and they hated him for it and attacked him for it. But one thing was unmistakably clear. He wasn't like other people. Jesus came to do something completely new. Because he upset the status quo, a bunch of people would follow Jesus around, and they would try to see him trip up, 
the Pharisees was, was in particular this group of people that just, they didn't like Jesus. He was supposed to be religious, and, and, and he came, and he's talking bad about the Pharisees and how they do religion and ministry, and, and they just said it, made it their goal to kind of get Jesus out. Well, the Pharisees kind of followed Jesus along as well as this other posse of people. They just, they followed Jesus, waiting for him to trip up. One day, Jesus and his disciples are walking through a field of wheat, and the disciples are hungry, so they reach down and they grab some grain and put it in their mouth. And this posse of people that are following Jesus, wait for him, waiting for him to trip up, they kind of jump in like, aha, gotcha. See, look what you did. You picked grain on the Sabbath. How could you do such a thing? That's against our law. And Jesus, he's looking down, kind of has this conversation with him. And he says, yeah, I get that. I, I'm a Jewish kid. I, I like the law, but, but I, I'm establishing this new thing. Yeah, I, I get what you're saying. I get all these commands. I like the commands. But I'm bringing a new command. And, and then he throws this kind of wrench in, into their whole belief system. And, and I, I imagine when he does these things, he almost does it with a smirk because he knows the end and they can't see it coming yet. And he looks down at me and he goes, guys, don't you understand? Something better than the temple is here, which immediately just throws this religious group in, in, into upheaval. Like, what do you mean something better than the temple? The temple is, is our religious system. It's our cultural system. Everything comes out of the temple. If you're saying there's something better than the temple, then you're saying we don't need the temple. We don't need the religiousness. We don't need the, the, the way our society moves and has, and has lived for thousands and thousands of years. Are you that radical to say that? And I imagine Jesus just smiles and goes, just wait. Just wait. Because he could see the end and they could not. He knew it was coming, but they did not. Jesus was beginning to introduce this idea that there's this new covenant, that there's, there's this, this new thing that's about to happen with my life. He was introducing the idea that there would be no more sacred places because in this culture, ever, there were sacred places. The temple was sacred. And inside the temple, there was this, this holy of holies. That was the most sacred place on planet earth to this group of people because that's where the spirit of God resided. There were sacred places where sacred things happened. There were sacred men who were allowed to open the sacred text, but other people couldn't. And Jesus says, see, I, I, I'm coming and I'm going to disrupt all that. Sacred is about to be moved. Sacred is commuting. When I'm finished, there's no more sacred places. There's no more sacred spaces. To, to be honest, when, when I finish, sacred has moved into the hearts and minds and consciences of every person alive. That, that from this point forward, the most sacred thing you'll come across is the person you're sitting next to right now. The most sacred thing you'll have is the children you're raising. The most sacred thing you'll ever understand is that sacred person you've committed your life to. You see, sacred has moved. It's no longer in things. It's no longer in places. It's in people. And again, Jesus just kind of upsets the status quo. That's not how we do it. That's not our religion. That's not the way it's done. And time and time again, all throughout Jesus' life, he continues to make these religious people upset at this new thing he's about to introduce. You see, some people looked at Jesus and they found him threatening. But other people will look at Jesus and they would find him completely intriguing. Who is this man? He's not like me. He's not like other people I've known. There's something about him I like, but there's something about him that, that makes me want to keep him at arm's length. Like, I'm, just, I'm just not sure. And so Jesus was threatening to some and intriguing to others. Around Passover, Around Passover, the people of Israel, this was like their big holiday. Around Passover, they were expecting something significant to happen. And every Passover, for hundreds of years, for thousands of years, the people of Israel were waiting for their Messiah to come. 
they had this idea the Messiah would come in kind of like a grand entrance, and every year it, it was all this you know, heightened emotion. People were kind of at the edge of their seats, like, is this going to be the year? Is this going to be the year that God does it, that he sends our Messiah, and he's going to come in and you know, rip off his garment? He's going to have the emblazoned M on his chest for Messiah, and the cape's going to be flowing in the wind. And you know, you know, he's like the superhero. He's going he's gonna to stake his claim on his kingdom. Is this the year the Messiah comes? See, they, their idea of Messiah coming was kind of of a king who would come back and push out the Roman Empire, push out the, the invaders outside of their borders, and reestablish the kingdom to the time of David and the, the time of King Solomon. And there was this idea that it could be Jesus because Jesus, he spoke with exceptional authority, but he refused to take charge. And immediately he won the crowd, but he refused the crown. And there's this confusion because this doesn't sound very Messiah-like. This isn't what we expected, but clearly you're not like us. So Jesus, help us. We're a little confused. Now, there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. The Jewish ruling council was called the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was basically like parliament and, and our Supreme Court kind of rolled into one. They were this governing body over the people of Israel. They kind of stood between the nation of Israel and the Roman Empire. And it was this the kind of elite group of people. And John is telling us this because he wants you to know how true the story is that he's about to tell you. That this isn't some fictitious fairy tale. This isn't some made-up conversation because it makes a really good point later on. This is, this is a real event. This is a man named Nicodemus who was a Pharisee. He started at the bottom, like the bottom rung of this religious institution. And he worked his way up and he made friends and he had political alliances. And it just kind of worked in his favor until he, he got this seat on this like elite chair where there was only like 20 to 70 people, depending on at what point in history you look at the Sanhedrin, that governed Israel. John's saying there is this man named Nicodemus who was a Pharisee, who worked for the Sanhedrin. He was part of the Sanhedrin. You can fact check this. You can look it up. This is all real. So he's telling you what I'm about to tell you actually happened with a real man and this guy, Jesus. There was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish council. John tells us he came to Jesus at night. And I wonder why he went to Jesus at night. Was it because, you know, he was too busy during the day and he could only get an appointment at night? I tend to think that, that, that perhaps it's because he didn't want people to see him talking to Jesus. After all, he was, he was a man of power. He was a man of reputation. He was, he was distinguished. He was the Sanhedrin. I couldn't be seen talking to this rabble-rouser, this troublemaker Jesus. Maybe it was because Jesus was so busy. And when you read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you, you always hear that wherever Jesus went, there was this crowd of people. So maybe you had to like put your name on a waiting list to get a meeting with Jesus, right? I'll take the next available appointment and one of the disciples reaches out where well, you can come in tonight. Whatever the case may be, he finds Jesus at night and he goes to Jesus with a, kind of a, a list of questions. He has things he wants answered. He's pursuing Jesus because he has questions. There's something different about you and I'm not sure what it is, Jesus. And I, so I have all these questions to answer you. So he comes to Jesus and he says this. He says, Rabbi, which is a sign of respect, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher who has come from God. That statement alone is just powerful that a man, a Pharisee, a man from the Sanhedrin would even declare Jesus as being a man from God because the Pharisees hated Jesus. They're the ones who later put a plan in place to arrest and kill him. Yet he's saying, clearly you're a teacher who has come from God. We, we know you're not like us. We know you're something different. You might look like us, but you don't act like us. You don't talk like us. And, and, and I know you're from God, not because of the things you say, although you do say some really weird things. 
I know you're from God, for no one can perform the signs. No one can perform the signs. And when you read these Gospels, you read of Jesus doing these incredible things, things that we would call miracles, right? He feeds thousands of people with just a few pieces of fish and bread. He heals people from these awful diseases. He raised his best friend from the dead. Like, he does all these radical things, and, and, and the followers are just like, look at these miracles, look at these miracles. But all the astute people who are kind of looking in, trying to figure the situ- situation out, men like Nicodemus, they're thinking, you see, it's not just a miracle, it's a sign. It's, it's pointing in a direction. There's a method to this. And it's pointing in the direction that we would know that this man was from God. They're more than just miracles. This isn't just happenstance. Jesus, you're doing things so that we would know who you are and where you've come from. For no one can perform the signs you were doing if God were not with them. And this is the preamble. This is just the introduction. This is him just establishing, kind of buttering Jesus up, right? Like, I'm on your good side. I've given you a good compliment. Now we're going to get into it. And I almost imagine at this point, Nicodemus, he's kind of sitting back. He rears himself back, takes a deep breath. Like, he's ready to just launch into his questions. Like, all right, I'm on your good side. Now, Jesus, he takes a deep breath. And before he can say a thing, Jesus kind of leans over and puts his hands on his shoulder. And before he can even ask a question, Jesus starts talking. He says, very truly, I tell you, No one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. And I imagine Nicodemus is like, see, there you go again. You don't even let people ask you questions. I have all these questions you're not even letting me ask. And and more than that, you speak in these riddles with these weird illustrations. Like, what do you even mean no one can see the kingdom of God unless they're born again? Because in our culture, in first century Judaism, the kingdom of God is synonymous with the kingdom of Israel. I'm Jewish. I was born into the kingdom of God. What do you mean I can't see the kingdom of God? It's almost like, like you're, you're insinuating that I, I can't even recognize it. Jesus, I'm part of it. It's my birthright. I was born into the kingdom of Israel. I'm born into the kingdom of God. What do you mean I can't see it unless I'm born again? It's like, Jesus, this doesn't make any sense. What are you talking about? No one can be born again. Or literally what this means, no one uh, born again means to be born from above. You can't see the kingdom of God unless you're born from above. And he's completely confused. I'm sure as most of us are when we read through some of the Gospels because Jesus is this brilliant man who knows the beginning and the ending and all of it together and we don't and it kind of like, it's kind of like he's speaking in riddles. But he's taking the conversation somewhere. It's a sign pointing in a direction. Nicodemus asks, how can someone be born when they are old? It's almost like he knows Jesus is messing with them. Surely they cannot... Enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born? And I imagine he's like, no, that's gross. It, it, it can't happen. Like, don't try. It's never going to happen. But you kind of get like Nicodemus is being sarcastic. Like, like, come on, Jesus. That's impossible. No one can physically be born again. How does this even happen? Really, Jesus? Like, are you just playing games again? Is this how it's going to be? You're not even going to get to my, my questions? You're not going to give me a direct answer? Jesus answers him. Very truly, I tell you, no one can enter. First, you can't see. Now you can't even enter the kingdom of God unless they are born. And and he throws this thing in here again that people don't understand. Unless they are born both of water and the spirit. And Nicodemus is like, what is going on here? Did you eat something bad for lunch? Did you smoke something rancid? Like, are you not, you're just not making any sense, Jesus. Flesh gives birth to flesh, Jesus says, which is, you know, Romans give birth to Romans, Jews give birth to Jews, Greeks give birth. You get that? Flesh gives birth to flesh. That that makes sense? Yeah, okay, I'm rolling with you, Jesus. 
Okay. But the Spirit gives birth to the Spirit. You see, you can't see or enter the kingdom of God unless you're born of the Spirit. Unless you're born of the Spirit of God. It's like Jesus is saying there's something more to be a part of what God's going to do. There has to be something more. It's not just nationality. It's not just race. It's not birthright. There's something more to be a part of what God's going to do. You have to be born again, born of God, born of the Spirit. There's something more to be a part of what God's doing in his kingdom. Then I think Jesus chuckles and he kind of looks at Nicodemus. He's like, come on, man. You shouldn't be surprised. Nicodemus, you shouldn't be surprised. You're a Pharisee. You're part of the Sanhedrin. You shouldn't be surprised by my saying that you must be born again because the wind blows where it pleases. Now, if you're anything like me and you're trying to understand what Jesus is saying when you're reading this, I read this studying and I'm like, what in the world? This, this doesn't make any sense to me. The wind blows. How does that have anything to do with what he's talking about? Again, Jesus is speaking to a direction. He's speaking to a point. He says, you shouldn't be surprised by these things. You, he, you hear the wind sound, you hear it sound, but you can't tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone who's born of the Spirit. It's like this word Spirit and God, they're actually the same word. And, and, and he's saying it's, it's, it's like they're the same. You can feel the wind, you can see what it, what it kind of, if it causes destruction in its path or it's blowing trees, but you don't know where it came from. You don't know where it's headed. It's the same way with God. You see, God made this covenant between, with Moses, between Moses and the people of Israel. God made this covenant, and, and he's saying, God is so much bigger than this covenant. This covenant is small, and it's to one nation, but God can't be bound by that. He stands outside of that. What he's doing, Nicodemus, is so much bigger than one group of people at one period in, in history. What he's doing is so much bigger, and he can't be confined. He can't be kind of brought into that category. And Nicodemus just doesn't get it, because that's all he has. All he has is his first century categories, and Jesus is just breaking them left and right, and he's left confused. What do you mean? I don't understand. He actually says this. <coughs> you read on. How can this be, he asks. Like, how did I miss this? I was raised. I was taught. I was, I'm a Pharisee. I'm part of the Sanhedrin. You don't get to a position higher than mine. How have I missed this for so long, Jesus? And it's kind of like Jesus looks back at him. He's like, seriously, Nicodemus? Ser you are Israel's preeminent teacher. You're the one who's supposed to be explaining this to them. You are Israel's teacher, Jesus said. And do you not understand these things? The conversation goes on and on. Sometimes it's clear, sometimes it's not. Nicodemus is really struggling. He's really trying to understand what Jesus is saying. But he has all these questions and the questions aren't getting answered. And maybe that's how you feel when you think about Jesus. Maybe you come to church and there's just been this, this question and your questions don't get answered. But, but you're trying. You're really struggling to figure out who Jesus is and what he wants for you. But you just don't have all the answers. Nicodemus continues to struggle. Then Jesus gets to something kind of like this common ground between he and Nicodemus. He, he, he starts this statement off by saying, just as Moses, and I can imagine at this point, it's finally something Nicodemus can stand on. Like, oh, I know Moses, right? I, I know Moses. He's, he's the lawgiver. He's the command bringer. He's the guy who went to Mount Sinai and met with God and brought down our laws. Like, I know Moses. Of course I know Moses, Jesus. Finally, you're saying something that makes sense. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, before Jesus can go on, I imagine in his head, he's, he's already thinking, yeah, I know this story. You don't have to tell me this, Jesus. I've taught this story. 
right? This is where the people of Israel, they've left Egypt. They're on their way to the promised land, and they're somewhere in the desert, and they come across a land full of snakes, and the snakes begin to bite people. Some are poisonous. So the people are dying, and the people are sick and in pain. So Moses does this crazy thing by, by building a bronze snake and putting it on a pole. And he lifts it up, and he walks through the camp. And whoever looks at the snake is healed. I know that story, Jesus. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. And I just imagine Nicodemus thinking, the Son of Man, we use that term to reference the Messiah. That's how we reference our Savior. And you're telling me the Son of Man is going to go up on a pole, on a wooden stick, any, any man who hangs from a wooden stick, whether he's impaled or on a cross, it, it's a sign that you are cursed by God. Are you telling me that our Messiah is going to come and suffer and be cursed by God? Nicodemus just didn't understand. He didn't, he didn't have a category for this. This was not what he was expecting when he was having this conversation with Jesus. It wasn't what he was expecting when he thought about the Messiah and the Messiah coming. Are you telling me that our Savior is going to die and suffer as a cursed man on a pole. Jesus continues, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. And this was a struggle. Because up until this point, the Messiah was coming for the Jews. But Jesus, you didn't say Jews. You said everyone. You, you're saying that the Messiah is coming for everyone. And I know this thing, eternal life, we've talked about eternal life, that you, would, you have to honor the Ten Commandments. You, you, have, to, you have to obey the laws and the commands. I, I, I get that. You, you, like, I know how you get eternal life. I'm just struggling with the fact that you're saying the Messiah is bringing this to everyone. I thought he was just bringing it to me. And Nicodemus, all these questions, wrestling with what Jesus is saying because he, doesn't, he can't put it all together yet. John, who's writing this, the Apostle John, he kind of takes a step out of this narrative for a moment. And we're going to pause on this Nicodemus and Jesus conversation because John does something incredibly unique here. John takes a step out of it. He takes a step out of the narrative that he's writing because much of Jesus' teaching would not make sense until after his resurrection. John, who's writing this, when he's, he's an eyewitness to this conversation and hearing it, he's thinking to himself, I don't even know what Jesus is talking about. But when he's writing this down, he's writing this event after what happened. Understand, John's not writing the Bible. The Bible doesn't happen until the fourth century. Right? The Bible happens hundreds of years later where they put all these works together in the Old Testament and put it in a cover. John's writing the narrative. He's an eyewitness to these events, and he wants everyone to know this amazing thing that Jesus did, this amazing conversation. And he doesn't want to lose you in the mix of telling you the story. So he takes a step out to offer some clarity about, about, on what's about going to happen. We do this when we tell stories. right? We'll tell, we'll tell our kids bedtime stories. And we'll say, like, the princess did this. But, but guys, she doesn't know yet that this is going to happen. She's going to discover it later. Because we want to entice them. Keep up with me. Don't, don't lose sight. Don't check out. Don't get bored. Don't miss this. The gospel writers do this all the time. Matthew was an eyewitness. Mark, he, he spent time with Peter. Luke, he investigated these things. <clears throat> John is an eyewitness. Jesus, probably favorite person, favorite disciple. They're eyewitnesses to these events, and when they're writing them down, they want the audience to want to read, to read to the end. But I imagine at this point, John is so concerned. If, if I don't interject something here, they're going to miss it. 
If I just continue with the story, they're going to miss what Jesus is trying to say because they, they don't know the end yet. I know the end. Nicodemus doesn't know the end, but I know the end. So John begins to, to struggle. How do I step out of this and cast light and shed light and clarity on what Jesus is trying to say? And that's what John does. He takes a step out of the context, out of, of Scripture, if you will, to tell us in his own words. These aren't Jesus' words. These are John's own words to try to explain what Jesus is teaching Nicodemus because Nicodemus couldn't understand because these things haven't happened yet. So John begins to get inspired and he looks over to his scribe and he quotes some words to his scribe. I believe he, that's how he wrote his, his gospel. Through a scribe dictating what happened and the scribe's writing it down. And he tells his scribe, he quotes to his scribe the most familiar words in the entire Bible. Now, whether you find yourself here because someone invited you or you've been coming for a while, maybe you've never come to church before, my guess is you've heard these words and you're familiar with them. They're the most powerful, most clear 27 words in all of Scripture. John says, I know you don't know what's going on, Nicodemus. I didn't know what was going on either. So here's some clarity. For God so loved the world. Nicodemus, he, he doesn't have categories for this because God doesn't love the world. In his mind, God loves Israel. John's saying, no, 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 you don't know the end yet. For God so loved the world that he gave. Because when you love, that's what you do. When you love, you give. When you love your spouse, you give. When you love your children, you give. God loved the world so much that he gave <clears throat> his one and only son. And then he gets to this point, and John's kind of struggling. He's like, I, I need them to know that he did this for a purpose. It's like he did this in order that, or so that. There's this continuation of thought. And then he does something that no other, no other Greek author has ever done before in Greek literature. As a matter of fact, the only time this is ever written down, the only time this was ever documented in literature is in John's gospel. He says, I, I, I want them to understand he did this so that people would believe, but it's not that they would believe that. It's, it, it, he didn't do this so that they would believe that God loved the world and that he gave his son. He did this so that they would believe in. And, and he combines this, this kind of verb for, for belief with this preposition for in, and he puts it together. And, and this is com completely grammatically incorrect. It's almost like a scribe looking at him saying, John, you can't do it. No, no, no. You got to do it this way. I know it's wrong. I know it doesn't sound right. I know it's grammatically incorrect. But, but this is what he did. He loved the world so much that he gave his one and only son so that or in order that whoever would believe in him, not believe that he was, but believe in him, that they would not perish, that they wouldn't die, that they wouldn't be eternally separated from God or, or float off into an oblivion, but that they would have. And then, and then he, he uses this kind of juxtap juxtaposition. He, he, he goes the complete opposite way of dying and death and perishing. He says, no, no, but they'll have eternal life. For God so loved the world. For God loved everyone so much that that little covenant that was created between Moses and the nation of Israel, it couldn't bind him. He loved the world so much that he was just using this as an illustration of what he was going to do later. He loved the world so much that he paid the biggest price and gave the thing he loved the most his only son, it cost him everything that whoever, not Jew, whoever, not based on race, not based on some uh, 
predisposed idea or political alignment. None of that matters. He says that whoever would believe in him, whoever would believe that he is the son of God, that he did what he said he would do, that he fulfilled what he promised to fulfill, whoever would believe in him, that they wouldn't perish, but they would live again. It's like John saying, you guys can't miss this. Nicodemus, I know you missed it, but it's only because you don't know the end. And before he jumps back to that conversation, he says, Here, here's something else. I, I, just, I want you to miss this. Don't, don't skip this part. Don't just breeze through this part. He wrote this really for his audience. He wrote this for you and for me and anyone who would read it. He said, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. God didn't send his son here to show up and condemn and just look at you and say, look at the awful mess you made. Look at the sin you're in. God didn't send Jesus to the scene of the accident to assign guilt. But the church has. I have. Jesus said, but not me. That's not why I came. I didn't come to condemn the world, but to save the world through me. And Jesus shows up like an EMT. Doesn't ask a lot of questions, but gets right to work saving the world. And when he found out the world needed a blood transfusion, he decided to use his own. And suddenly, we're back all the way at the beginning. Jesus showing up on the banks of the Jordan River. John the Baptist, in the water, hip deep baptizing people, saying over and over and over again, it's coming, it's gonna happen. They told me that I was the one who would pave the way for the Messiah. It's going to happen, but I don't, it's going to happen, guys. It's going to happen. And then one day, he's baptizing people, and he looks up, and he just kind of stops. And I can just imagine the emotion that came over John, the excitement, like, guys, look. Don't look at me anymore. You've been looking at me. Stop looking at me. Look. It's the Lamb of God who's come to take away the sin of the world. It's here. This is what we've been waiting for. Jesus is here. For God so loved the world, he loved you so much that he sent his only son to die for you so that you could live for him. Another Pharisee would come along years later. The man who said he was the worst of the worst. The best Pharisee, the most religious. A man who made it his assignment to stomp out our church. He meets Jesus and his life is transformed. And he kind of says it this way. He says it's kind of like an adoption process. Except you're not the one adopting. You're the one being adopted. And the greatest father in the world has come along. and says, I want you to be part of my family. And all you have to do is accept. All you have to do is accept the invitation. If I haven't made it clear enough for you, I want to make it even more clear. Here's how we teach this to our kids. Here's what we do in our kids' environments. Here's how I've taught my kids. We basically say this. <clears throat> God loved, so God gave. God loved the world so much that his love required him to do something, to give something. So he gave his son. And our response is to believe and to receive you see, we get caught up in this idea that, that, that there's all this work to do when it comes to, to faith in Jesus, with that, to being a, a Christ follower or a disciple. The truth is, all the heavy lifting's been done. All the work's been done. 
We don't have to do anything. Jesus did it. There's no more dues. It's, I've, it's been done. God loved and God gave. And all we have to do is believe. And if we believe, we can receive. And if we receive, we have life. Life in all of its fullness. See, following Jesus is not about a bunch of rules. It's not about a bunch of do's. It's about something that's already been done. And quickly, we'll just finishing off this conversation with Nicodemus. We don't know where it ended. My guess is the conversation ended and Nicodemus went home confused and upset. None of my questions were answered. He spoke in riddles. I didn't understand a thing he said. I thought this man was different, but clearly he's just insane. And a few months later, maybe a year later, Jesus is arrested and is brought before the court. And they're filing charges against him and they're finding witnesses against him, telling him that he was inciting riots. You know who's part of that court? Nicodemus, part of the Sanhedrin. A few days later, he would watch as Jesus walked through the streets, carrying a cross. And I imagine Nicodemus on the outside of the crowd looking out over the heads of the people, over the crowds of people. And that pole would be risen up and Jesus would be hung in the center. And Nicodemus would look up and remember this conversation and say, man, none of my questions were answered. But he's right. He did what he said he would do. Here's how we know that Nicodemus believed. Because after Jesus died on a cross, Nicodemus was one of the men who went and took Jesus' body off the cross. Our guess is that he had to bribe Pilate with some money because, you know, Jesus was a criminal, or at least died a criminal's death. They had to pay with Pilate, would you give us his body? This man doesn't deserve to have his body thrown on a pile of other bodies to be eaten by dogs. Nicodemus, I'm not sure, Pilate, if he really was the son of God, but he clearly wasn't like us. He deserves better. They bribed Pilate, and they got permission, and they got Jesus' body off the cross, a few hundred pounds, which means they had a few servants with them, Nicodemus and a man named Joseph. This wasn't Jesus' father, Joseph. This was Joseph of Arimathea. And they take Jesus' body to an unused tomb. And they begin to wrap his body, but they do it quickly because Passover is coming. You can't, we can't do this once nightfall hits. Like, like we got to wrap this up. So they wrap up his body fast, and they, they, they put it in the tomb. They moved the stone over the tomb, expecting full well that eventually the body would decompose and they could come back and collect the bones and get, put it in an ossuary and give it to the family to be buried somewhere. But that's not how the story ended. You see, Nicodemus had all these questions. He didn't really get a lot of answers till the end. But he stood there looking at a Messiah hung on a cross and said, All my questions weren't answered. Honestly, the guy confused me. But I believe. I believe he was who he said he was. And I believe he did what he promised me he would do. And that's the question for you this morning. We know that God loved. We know that God gave. The question is, will we believe? And will we receive? You see, this is an invitation to something that's already been done for you. God loved, so God sent. It's already been done. And if there's any do, I guess, as far as following Jesus, it's this. Would you just accept the invitation? Because the invitation is there for you. 
It's an invitation that John says everyone should be a part of. That Paul would say everyone should be a part of this. That Jesus said, I've done this so the invitation can go to everyone. Not just the people of Israel, but for every person, for all of time. That you would be a part of what I'm going to do. That you would be a part that you would see and enter the kingdom of God. Would you accept my invitation? So here's what we're going to do. We're going to close the service and I'm going to ask you to say a prayer. If you find yourself here and you feel a little bit like Nicodemus, like maybe you've come for a while and you've had questions and your questions aren't always answered. <clears throat> and to be honest, I will probably never be able to answer every question you have. But maybe you've come and you've just toiled over this thought for years, maybe weeks. Maybe this is your first time and this message just gripped you like it grips me every time I hear it. I think I may not have all the answers yet. But man, I believe. I do believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that he did what he promised to do. You see, Christianity, is, is, we're not, we don't become Christians. We don't become Jesus followers because of faith. We become Jesus followers because of what Jesus did. And it's faith that allows us to do that. Faith is just saying, hey, I, I'm willing to accept the invitation and I'm going to transfer my believe in, my trust in, from me to you. Because I've tried it with me and it's not working. I've tried it with me and I fail time and time and time again. To be honest, I'm here because I'm unhappy. I'm here because I'm miserable. I'm here because I've made mistakes and it's because I've trusted in me. And Jim, this morning, I'm willing to try trusting someone else. So through faith... We say, Jesus, I trust in you. What I want you to know is when we say this prayer, it's not the prayer that saves you. Jesus saved you. It's not the prayer that even forgives you. Jesus has forgiven you. It's the prayer that says, I accept the gift. I accept the forgiveness. I'm no longer trusting in me, but I'm trusting in you. If that's you this morning, please, 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 don't let this moment pass you by before you're willing to say, Jesus, I trust in you. I've tried it my way, and it's not working. I want to try it your way. Let's get every head to be bowed and every eye closed. For those of you that want to say this prayer, I'm just going to ask you to say this prayer after me. It's not a magical prayer. You can change the words. It simply goes like this. Heavenly Father, God, I know I've made mistakes. I've trusted in myself for too long, and today I want to trust in you. I believe Jesus is the Son of God, and I believe that he came and he died for me so that I could live for you. And this morning, I transfer my trust from me to you, and I invite Jesus in to be the Savior of my life. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Heavenly Father, I thank you for every person here, God. I pray with all my heart that these words God would be so incredibly true to us that this kind of sneak peek into this conversation between, Nicod between Jesus and this Pharisee God, which had so much light that Jesus was always here from the very beginning to point people to you, to be the savior of the world and to offer us forgiveness. I pray you'd give us the wisdom to know what to do with that and the courage to take a step and do it. In Jesus' name, amen.